0: When we give them money, we ask them for a lot of things that they weren't necessarily set up to do. You know, a small organization that started out helping fellow men who have sex with men get access to treatment wasn't necessarily thinking about what kind of financial software they need to use to be able to re- respond to the audits from the U.S. government, right? Somebody who initially, their day-to-day work was talking to somebody who is at risk of HIV and trying to get them to come in to do testing, might all of a sudden now, years later, right, the head of an organization that does that at a larger scale, but now this person has to understand also, like, how to do an annual report, how to use indicators, how to communicate their story, how to report where all the money went.
1: You're listening to Aid of All, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This is a podcast about the people trying to find a better way to do good. Today, we'll be speaking with Marie Ahmed. Marie has spent over a decade working with USAID, the largest single contributor to the aid industry in the world. Her title is quite a mouthful. Here we go. She is the Director of the Office of Public Health at USAID's Regional Development Mission for Asia, based in Bangkok. In this far-ranging conversation with Marie, we cover the breadth of her career in aid. We start off just after she's completed Peace Corps in Uzbekistan, and journey with her through America, Nepal, Rwanda, Cote d'Ivoire, and finally land with her in Thailand. I will say, this conversation for me was one of the most eye-opening conversations I've had on the podcast so far. For all of you that work in aid, I think you've asked the same questions that I have. Why can't USAID plan long-term? Why don't we invest more in local organizations? That kind of stuff. Since she's responsible for overseeing USAID's work in other countries, Marie gets asked these questions all the time. And in this conversation, she shares what that's like. Because even if it is the largest donor in the world, any individual working in that system still needs to balance the pressures from home and from abroad, and the deadlines and the accountability that we're all faced with. Before we dive in, big caveat. Marie made it very clear as I was interviewing her that this conversation is about her personal experiences, her perspectives, her opinions, and what it's like balancing the roles that she's played over the course of her career. Nothing that she says is representative of USAID or US government and should not be interpreted as such. All right, on with the show. Marie grew up in Virginia, the child of immigrant parents. And I asked her what inspired her early on to start a career in the nonprofit sector.
0: Helping people and consideration for other people has always just been a big part of how I grew up. With my parents, they immigrated to the U.S. when they were young adults. And I know they didn't have a very big community, really, where they lived. They had some family, and that increased over time. They were always very eager to build relationships, especially with people who were, you know, like family. Um, And growing up, my parents, they had a television repair shop uh, in Virginia. My dad still has the shop and uh, they used to fix TVs, like they would go do repairs, like in people's homes back in the day when TVs were huge, right? And you can't just <laughs> like take them anywhere Like Those were the days. So my dad used to do a lot of service calls at homes for older people. And as people aged and they were kind of just, a lot of them by themselves, their families had grown up and gone away. My parents would take us, my brother and I, to go visit them on the weekends just to, you know, bring a little cheer to some people who are otherwise probably gonna have, you know, a little too much time to themselves. I mean, as long as I can remember, we were visiting people just to brighten their day kind of thing, just to make their day a little better. It's always been a part of what my parents have instilled in me. It came very naturally to always look for volunteer opportunities when I was younger, to help out in smaller ways, and just something that was part of how I always thought I wanted to be as an adult.
1: After Marie graduated from college, she wanted to find a way to go overseas. And she wanted it to be cheap. After all, she was just a student. So she applied to the American Peace Corps program. Here's how she reacted when she found out that the Peace Corps had placed her in Uzbekistan.
0: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I actually thought it was a mistake when I got the invitation. The wrong time it was so short. I called them. I was like, "Is this correct that you want me to be ready to leave in like four weeks?" I, was like, I a "Great <laughs> job." And they said, well, uh, "Yes. We didn't. If we, if we didn't think you could make it, we wouldn't have sent it to you." I was like, "Okay, then." <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you went to the Peace Corps. You worked in the nonprofit. How were those experiences similar or different than what you were expecting? Maybe when you first got started.
0: I don't think I really had any expectations for B score. So maybe we'll set that one aside. I think the nonprofit sector I think was for me as a you know, as the first job out of my masters program, or even actually while I was in my masters program I started working. It was it was a lot more yeah, I can't think of another word other than grunt work.
1: <laughs> uh, Every organization needs a so, grunt work.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm grateful for it actually. I think that it's a, it actually is a really important part of the way that I manage now because I I still very clearly remember what I had to do when I first started Uh kind of just the repetitive tasks that I had to do or whatever you know actually sometimes I still like to do those now I'm like I'll put together binders for you it'll give me like I can be (laughs) productive with my hands while taking a mental vacation (laughs) for like you know the next 20 minutes (laughs) I hear you but you know I think the part that was really shocking to me was the pay I have to be very frank about it. I think that was the most shocking part to me.
1: What were your expectations and what was the pay?
0: This whole thing that you hear now, right, like about like unpaid internships, right? You know, the fact that the entry level jobs are quite low paying, even when you're in like an expensive city, right? And so you Mm. can't even cover your costs of living. Just a lot of talk about how people are excluded from this kind of work because of their own situation. You don't have the luxury of taking a job that doesn't pay or that doesn't pay enough. Right. And so that automatically excludes people that had not really occurred to me before and nor had I felt it in such a real way. I mean, I was fortunate that I was able to do it. I really had to scrimp and like really be very mindful of everything that I did and spent money on. But, um, mm. but I was able to make it work. And I know a lot of people, like I said, don't have that luxury. That was, I think, the biggest shock to me. All the work part, I was like ready for the actual like clerical administrative or like data entry type stuff that I was expecting I could handle that. But it was this other piece I had never really considered that I think was the biggest eye opener for me.
1: Yeah. You point to a really interesting thing that a lot of people don't see directly, which is that the way that it's structured with the pay, you know, as you mentioned, is only a certain kind of person can start doing this kind of work. And it's if you need to support, you know, like lots of extended family members, then you're not going to have that option. And what does that do? To the sector overall, you know, when it's staffed by all these people who necessarily come from richer families or families that have more freedom, um, so I think even though it's a, it's like a little, it's a it's a microcosm of your experience of it, it speaks to an interesting. Like I think it has a lot of implications for the kind of people that make up the sector. I'm really glad that you pointed that out.
0: Have you heard this saying that the the foreign service is pale, male, and Yale?
1: I have not. Wow <laughs> that's <laughs> that's that's memorable. <laughs>
0: I think the U.S. government is very well aware of these challenges related to diversity in the workforce. And both the Department of State and USAID are taking steps to address them. The Department of State recently announced Ambassador Gina Abercrombie-Winston Stanley as Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the Department of State. Awesome. Within USAID also, as a staff member, just seeing the email traffic, I've already seen so much movement around people clearly stating their positions, first of all, which is important to hear from leadership, right? Yes, but also interest groups within the agency are doing a lot of work to try to make sure that people have the opportunity to be heard and to listen to one another. You know, there's been a great series of webinars that um, they've been rolling out recently, uh, talking just about variety of issues related to diversity in the workplace and people's experience as people of color or based on their sexual orientation or, you know, any like a wide variety of issues. And I think that it's it's really been great to see that kind of activity because I don't think I've seen at this level since I started.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's phenomenal.
0: I mean, it's a reflection of what we're talking about right now. It takes a certain level of privilege to work in the development sector that generally might start out much more low paying or, you know, the government service, which also starts out generally lower paying, right? Than if you look at private sector counterparts, I remember hearing that myself when I started at USAID, I had colleagues that had to relocate from other parts of the country and colleagues who had families and moving to DC, which costs way more than wherever they were living before, right? And coming with family, the cost of daycare, they are like, we don't know how we're going to do this. But of course, the ones that I met had already taken the job. So they figured it out. Uh, but even myself, when I first joined, the first tour, I was like, oh my gosh, the cost of just like getting yourself right overseas is not um, not small.
1: Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your move into USAID. Tell me about those first couple years.
0: So I started at USAID under um, the Development Leaders Initiative Program or DLI program. It was a massive, the first kind of massive hiring initiative that USAID had had in many years. USAID tends to hire in cohorts like this um, because right. they need congressional appropriations to hire so uh, I came under the Daylight Initiative in 2009, July like 2009. And so the first um, kind of year or so, it was a little less than a year, uh, was training in Washington, kind of getting, mm-hmm. you know, the 101 of USAID, how it works. And then um, the first assignment's directed. So I was very lucky to be directed to Nepal for two years. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of my first, that was like the field training, essentially, like learning how a mission works and what a health office does.
1: And why do you say you were lucky?
0: Um, I think lucky like in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, Paul's is an amazing country with amazing people. But also, I think that uh, I really lucked out in terms of a mission that was really well organized, well hmm. run, had really exe- had really seasoned, you know, American and local staff. So I learned a lot. And because they were co located with the U.S. Embassy, I also got um, more of a insight into how you know that relationship works together and can work well. You know, or the challenges that are associated with it. So I, I think in, I didn't realize it as much at the time, although I quite enjoyed my time there. But in retrospect, as I heard, you know, kind of varied experiences, I realized just how lucky I really was to start out there. and It nice. gave me a really good start.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds like a great, a great orientation. And from there you moved to Rwanda?
0: Yes. Then I was in Rwanda for four years.
1: Gotcha. What kind of work did you dive into when you were in Rwanda?
0: So I originally arrived there as a health service, a health system strengthening team leader. Um, but because of, uh, some unexpected turnover, um, I ended up basically serving as the acting health office director for three of the four years that I was there.
1: That's a long time. Yeah. It's a, you know, I feel like it's, it's longer than I typically think of when I think of like an acting role.
0: Yeah. It's one of those you kind of take it six months at a time. You have a plan it didn't really work out. And so before you know it, three years later, that's what (laughs) I've been doing.
1: Did you kind of feel like you had to dive in on, in the deep end because of the rapid shift?
0: It was definitely thrown into the deep end. But fortunately, with uh, plenty of life preservers, I have to say, (laughs) I had, like, I think I've been very fortunate in my my time at USAID. Um, I had excellent support from mission management and other colleagues and resources from Washington. You know, I think that's um, one thing that's kind of remarkable about USAID, the way that it's set up is, you know, it's really a decentralized agency and the missions have a lot of autonomy and Mm. agency and, but... Headquarters is really there as a resource and support as well. Nice. So there's always someone to phone home to, (laughs) essentially.
1: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like that sounds like the the key thing to figure out, you know, the balance between headquarters and country offices. I think in, in many of the, many of the people that we've talked to are kind of caught in that, in that balance, uh, you know, like how much, how much to lean one way, how much lean another. And there's no, there's no perfect answer, <laughs> right? It's just kind of, I think different organizations strike that balance in different ways.
0: No, I was just going to, say I think a big part of the reason that the missions have so much autonomy is because, um, you know they're responsive to the host country government as they should be, right? And it, that given country's priorities, and so that that can differ significantly, right?
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> you're also much closer to to the needs um, and the discussions on the ground. So I think I think that's a big reason.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. For in your experience as health program director, what was your experience of that of that balance? You know, what were the areas in which you you felt like you had autonomy, um, and what were some of the areas where you needed to to balance things between a lot of different actors?
0: I actually think that the bigger balance is um, less so between headquarters in the field and more so between um, the US government and the host country. Oh, right?
1: Because let's talk about that.
0: Yeah, the US government is a very generous donor. Um, in Rwanda, it was the largest donor, I think, in any sector. Um, Rwanda is, of course, a very small country.
1: I think they're the largest aid donor in the world.
0: Yes. Yes, Um, that won't be the same, of course, country to country. But I think that was I think U.S. government was by far the largest donor in Rwanda.
1: So you had a lot of responsibility in Rwanda.
0: Yes, the health portfolio was extremely diverse. Um, We had family planning, maternal child health, nutrition, water, hygiene, sanitation, malaria, HIV programming. Maybe that's it. But yeah, basically spending the gamut.
1: um, That sounds like enough. (laughs) Of all of
0: USAID's health programming. So, but the, the, you know, Rwanda is, they also have a very clear vision for themselves. And so I think the balance is always trying to, you know, balance, trying to support that vision with, you know, the mandate that we still come with as the U.S. government and the parameters within which we have to work, because we have a lot of parameters within which we have to work as the U.S. government.
1: That makes sense to me. I mean, you're responsible... You're responsible to the American people. They've elected you. They've put their taxpayer dollars in you. And so there is there is a certain development agenda that the people of the United States have signed off on. But you also need to balance that with what's going on in Rwanda.
0: Right. Exactly. So I think that, you know, you know, when we do like some of the operational plans for the different types of funds, you know, it's always a collaborative process with the host country government, right? You meet with the Ministry of Health officials and talk about their priorities, you know, the priorities that we are able to support and then what that might look like. But, uh, but they don't always match exactly. You know, sometimes, mm. you know, we might have our earmarks and things from the U.S. Congress and they say, this is how much money we'd like you to spend on, you know, the orphans and vulnerable children earmark um, mm. in Rwanda. Here's X amount of money. And, uh, you know, Rwanda might say, okay, that's great, but we actually need more help over here <laughs> um, mm. with, you know, I don't know, treatment or something, right? right. And say, well, we don't actually, we don't really have, enough money available for that. But here we have a lot for, for orphans and vulnerable children. <laughs> Let's work on this. So, Tricky. you know, that's the kind of, I think that's actually the much harder balance to strike sometimes. Um, because I fully recognize, right, that like, I understand why you, you, you know, host country government has prioritized these things in this way. And I want to support you, but I, I'm limited, right? Or I have a certain way in which I need to operate as well.
1: For sure. And I appreciate you calling that out because I think it's, it's that kind of tension that a lot of people working in the sector, they just, they just don't know, you know, they don't know that you're working within those constraints, but that's just the nature of the responsibility that the U.S. government uh, is fulfilling for, for its people. Was there ever, is, is there a specific example of that, like a program that you really wanted to, you personally like wanted to push for, but it was complicated to navigate that between U.S. government and Iranian government?
0: I mean, I'll be very frank. Like those conversations can be very difficult and they don't always come out. And they might come out in a way that like nobody's happy with, <laughs> honestly.
1: That sounds like the worst.
0: Um, and that has happened. And it's really unfortunate where we all walk away like unhappy. But I think it happens. It's happened more than I would have liked.
1: <laughs> I believe it. How does I'm curious how like does when you say that, you know, Congress has earmarked like X amount of money needs to go to orphans and vulnerable children. Is someone in D.C. saying, you know, how does that happen? You know, like is someone in D.C. saying like, you know, we need to spend X on OVCs in Rwanda.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that actually can it can be that specific. Yes
1: why? (laughs) Sorry, this is, I know this is a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it. Why?
0: No, not at all. I think that actually, you know, this is one of the things that people, I would really like people to have a better understanding of in terms of, sure, USAID is, you know, the, you know, U.S. government's development agency over, you know, overseas, and we provide foreign assistance. However, that money was not generated by USAID. It was allocated or appropriated to us by the U.S. Congress. Mm. So actually, the first decision-making cut happens in Congress. Oh, interesting. Congress people have a constituency, right? So I think it's important that people understand those connections and why, you know, I would say something like, I am accountable to the U.S. taxpayer.
1: Interesting. That's fascinating. Are you saying Congress will actually say HIV is a priority or not this year and family planning is or is not a priority and like this is how much money are going to go into those specific programs and that decision happens at Congress?
0: Yes. Actually, that's exactly what happens. So, like, PEPFAR, the President's Plan for Emergency AIDS Relief, is authorized by Congress every five years. PEPFAR is—it's been going on for what, twenty years? That was only five years. It was an emergency plan. <laughs> so, every five years, when the authorization ends, Congress needs to review. Interesting. Where they review the results, they review the budget, and they decide if it's a priority or not, and if they want to reauthorize the act, <laughs>
1: PEPFAR. That's a really good point. I think of PEPFAR as being such a major source of funding within USAID. It is. Uh, The idea that it was supposed to be short term.
0: Yeah. I mean, PEPFAR is an interagency initiative, so it actually goes to the State Department. So it funds the State Department, USAID, CDC, DOD, um, HRSA, the main ones anyway, Peace Corps also in some countries.
1: For those of you listening who are not American, like myself, I hope you're enjoying this smorgasbord of acronyms. Let me provide a quick explainer. We have State Department, which is responsible for international affairs and foreign relations. We have USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, which is technically an independent agency, but its administrator reports to the Secretary of State. Then, we also have two separate executive departments of the U.S. government to contend with. One is the Department of Defense, and the other is the Department of Health and Human Services. Within Health and Human Services, is HRSA and CDC. HRSA is the Health Resources and Services Administration, which primarily concerns itself with healthcare for the uninsured and vulnerable in the United States, while CDC is the public health agency. Then, separately, we have Peace Corps, which is a volunteer program and, as far as I can tell, reports directly into Congress. Oh, you can imagine what it must take. For PEPFAR to draw and authorize its funds across this many different US government actors. Damn.
0: So, yeah, absolutely. PEPFAR is authorized by Congress. So is the President's Malaria Initiative, PMI.
1: I did not know that. Fascinating.
0: So, all, actually, all of USAID's money is authorized by Congress. Interesting. Or is appropriated by Congress every year. That's part of the reason we can't do multi-year planning either, because we have to wait for our appropriations from Congress. Oh. I know that's another pet peeve of people, right? They're like, why can't you do multi-year commitments or plan yeah. beyond one year? You're in development. You should be looking at the longer term. Exactly. So
1: <laughs> like when you say that, it immediately resonates with me.
0: <laughs> so I know a lot of people ask that question, right? Um, <laughs> and host country governments ask that, too. They say, why can't we you know, decide that we're going to do this together? And mm-hmm. why can't you commit? We need some predictability to plan our own budget, right? Yeah. But uh,
1: interesting. So in some ways, it all kind of traces back to the cycle of how things happen in DC around everything uh, in the U.S. government, like election cycles and how, how long people are in office and budget budget cycles. I guess is the main thing that we're that we're talking about.
0: Well, budget and policy, right? With changes policy. in administration, we always expect to see changes in policy that impact our foreign assistance.
1: Right. For does that mean for you working in Rwanda, a big part of your job is? And maybe I'm just saying what you've already said, but looking at the needs of Rwanda and then pulling apart those different things, like in PEPFAR and PMI, like what are the different pieces that we can pull together to try to find that best fit, even if there isn't like a perfect fit? Is that part of the the matchmaking role that you were playing?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it, trying to have those pieces come together and just okay. make sure that everything makes sense on the ground, right? Because when the money is initially appropriated, like I said, it's by somebody in Washington, D.C., right? And by the time that money actually arrives in Nepal, Rwanda, Cote d'Ivoire, Thailand, how do we actually translate that into action that helps somebody?
1: That's a great question. And I know that you've, I know the responsibilities that you've had in Rwanda, you've had similar responsibilities in, in the other country offices where you've served in Cote d'Ivoire and in the regional office for Asia. As you've navigated that tension, which sounds like a real fundamental tension in the system, has your approach Evolved in the different countries?
0: um I mean, I like to think that I've been able to take, you know, kind of learn from each uh, experience that I've had and take that to the next country and try to right. improve or the, yeah, try to improve the way that, you know, it might have been before. That's not to say that I don't, there's not like great things also that I find when I arrive in a place. um But I mean, it's kind of just a general premise that you can always do things a little bit better, right? Like you were saying at the beginning. Um, yeah. So I think that that is one of the advantages of having this type of system within USAID for the missions where the foreign service officers, thats just myself, cycle every two to four years um, mm-hmm. and kind of help with the cross-pollination and bring yeah. some lessons from other countries um, or other offices uh, to their current one.
1: Um, that makes a lot of sense. As you've worked in the different offices, you said sometimes you learn and there's some uh, really great surprises about how things are running well, where um, you might learn things that you that could be done better in another country offices. What are some of the, the, the pleasant surprises that you've come across um, or some of the things that you've learned, you know, looking at the different country offices that you've been part of?
0: I mean, I'd say, so I think one of um, the biggest pleasant surprises that I can think of off the top of my head um, is probably in Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, when I arrived there, I think two surprises. One, I had, um, I had arrived there thinking, thinking that it would be a predominantly PEPFAR program, pr- predominantly HIV focused program. Um, I think it was like 90% of the budget or something like that. But by the time I left, um, we had already started, we were able to start the malaria program, the PMI program uh, in Cote d'Ivoire. And we were already planning for maternal child health and family planning programs as well. And those were huge needs in Cote d'Ivoire. You know, I think oh. just traditionally because West Africa is francophone, um, the U.S. government has not had um, as large of a presence. And so, you know, the, and because of also civil conflict specifically in Cote d'Ivoire, the program USA had to close down there and then had to had reopened very slowly and, you know, started with just the HIV program. So there was no other programming there at the time. But you know, in the two years that I was there, I was able to see huge evolution in that program in terms of you know, broadening into areas where like, um, support was so desperately needed, especially family planning. Yes. Um, so that was one pleasant surprise. And the other one was I think from the team there, I learned a lot about data visualization from the uh, oh. Evorian team that worked really? in the office there. How so? Yeah. Um, they had a GIS specialist there who made mm-hmm. amazing maps and helped me understand um, how you could you know use data and so data and spatial relationships in a, in a variety of different ways to target programs
1: that's so awesome that was that's very incredible exciting. yeah yeah it's great to yeah. have that uh, that learning as you go to the different yeah. country offices yeah.
0: And I should say two years is not a very long time, so I cannot take credit for any of those things <laughs> in terms of, expand, a bit of expanding the program. A little
1: bit of credit. <laughs> but very
0: pleased to be able to be part of it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I was going to say like that must, that sounds like a very exciting time. You know, if you're there when the family planning program is being born, I imagine there's some pretty seminal decisions that are being made about how it's going to start, you know, and who it's going to start with and things like that. Um, did you feel like you were part of that inception you know that like the beginning of these new programs and what was that like
0: yeah so um, on the family planning one that came kind of that came towards the end so I didn't get as much time on that one but uh but it's exactly that I think it is very exciting to to come in like I said knowing that you can help to fill a really great need and that people are really excited to pick up this work and just start talking to people and I think you know there's a lot of excitement in the beginning but like what could we do you know there's so many things that we could do. Um, and so many results that we could potentially see really quickly in terms of really impacting people's lives, especially when you work in an area like service delivery, right? It's very direct. So yeah, no, I think it's
1: very, <laughs> it's very exciting. Makes sense. I imagine it's like on, on the one hand, you have a lot of excitement. On the other hand, you have the fact that these programs haven't run before. So you need to lay a certain amount of groundwork. Part of your role in that is striking the right balance between the the idealism and practically what's going to get done in year one or in year two. Is that right?
0: yeah i think especially in my um in my role as the the office director that's part of the less fun part that i probably have to remind people about is all Mm. of the (laughs) rules um and just you know all making sure that all the steps are followed because you know it's new for the team also so even if a team has been there for many years it's a new area that they're going into um and aren't as familiar with and all the you know things that come with that so um so yeah it definitely is uh there's the excitement, but also, as you said, the just making sure that as much as we need to think about the big picture, that all the T's, and the, you know, T's are crossed and I's are dotted as well.
1: Mm-hmm. That that makes sense. Um, I think there's, your your part of your responsibility, as you're saying, is to, is to make sure that you're following process appropriately. And part of the reason for that is, is the accountability that you have, you know, you need to make sure that you're accountable to, to DC, that like the, the indicators are there and that you're, you know, you're, you're using taxpayer money responsibly. Um, and part of that means following process, even when it's a long process.
0: Yeah, everything we do has to be able to stand up to an audit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I honestly think, I mean, the audit is very, very important. But I think that it's also equally as important to be able to, you know, clearly explain to people what it is that we're doing and why we do it and what do we get out of it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Right.
0: So like you're saying, like the, the indicators and the reporting um, and the accountability, So there's the actual, the audit part, but then
1: there's, you know, the, um, the actual what we're doing part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one thing that's not well understood and I would love to see it more understood is, is the why around some of these processes, you know, like there's everyone, you know, I think someone could say of every government in the world, like it's, it's slow and there's all this process. Um, but if people can understand this process exists so that we can get this outcome, this process exists so that we're accountable to that actor, then it just creates a little bit more empathy even if it can't, it can't be done any faster. <laughs>
0: I know, I know that it's really not satisfying to hear that you know there's a reason for all of this <laughs> uh, because it's, it's so slow. Like the process is very heavy with the U.S. government. I
1: mean, it's better to hear there's a reason than that there's no reason.
0: <laughs> yes, that is true. I just think about you know there's a lot of questions around why don't you just directly fund local organizations?
1: Yeah, there are
0: instead of using these implementing partners, large NGOs, and things like that. But a big part of the answer is because. There's a lot of regulations that come with the accountability piece. And that is really important, being accountable for the program since the U.S. taxpayer, where this money is going. And would you rather know where it's going and not necessarily love it or not have any idea where it went or what it did?
1: Oh, that's, that's like between a rock and a hard place, which I think is where a lot of these decisions end.
0: Exactly. Which is why I think, you know, you know, USAID has tried to find the middle uh, the middle ground in this, which is to, you know, yes, we use large partners to do a lot of our implementation. At the same time, these local, you know, we've had over the years, I've been with USAID, a few now, um, local capacity building initiatives where we work directly with local organizations to increase their capacity to manage US, U.S. funding. Because when we give them money, we ask them for a lot of things that they weren't necessarily set up to do. You know, a small organization that started out helping, you know, fellow men who have sex with men get access to treatment wasn't necessarily thinking about what kind of financial software they need to use to be able to respond to the audits from the US government. right? Oh,
1: that's a great example, so, that's a great example.
0: Like in terms of helping them figure out how to do that, that takes time, right? Somebody who initially, like I said, their day-to-day work was, or might have been, talking to you know somebody who is at risk of HIV and trying to get them to come in to do testing, might all of a sudden now, years later, right? Be the head of an organization that does that at a larger scale, but now this person has to understand also, like how to do an annual report, how to use indicators, how to communicate their story, how to report where you know all yeah. the money went.
1: Yeah, yeah. And maybe maybe their their passion and what they're good at is connecting um, with men who have sex with men and like delivering programs. And maybe they just aren't great with financial software <laughs> or with you know with or with diligently reporting every week. <laughs> or remote. I
0: remember actually. At one point, I had a conversation with an international partner who had um, a group of subpartners. And we said, you know, are any of these subpartners uh, good candidates for direct funding from USAID? And they said, listen, we're not saying this to, to make this hard for you. But they're like, they don't really want to deal with you. You know, like the internet, re- you know, they said the local partners are very happy to have us essentially as the buffer. Like we deal with the donor. We deal with the reporting. We help them, you know, keep all their oh, books straight. Yeah. Well, and they can do what they're good at. They don't necessarily want to deal directly with the donor and all of your demands, and you guys calling them and saying like, "We really need this report, or we need this tweet, or we need this fact sheet."
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So, it, for you know, for local organizations too, they have to think of their own cost-benefit analysis, right?
1: No, actually, even even as you're saying, I was just thinking like, is there some way that we could get somebody else to do the financial accounting for these small organizations? And that's what these big agencies are doing, like these large nonprofits, these you know, Beltway bandits um, that take all of, of of USAID monies. Part of what they're doing is is providing that rigor and that reporting so that the small social enterprise or the small nonprofit doesn't need to figure out the complexities of the U.S. government reporting systems. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it in that way until this exact conversation.
0: And it can be overwhelming. You know, I had to say something that really opened my eyes it was very recently when I arrived here in Thailand, i have been here in Thailand for about two years and we actually do fund HIV service delivery for key population led health services here in Thailand. So, but we fund them through um, uh, FHI 360. So we have an IP who subs to these local organizations for service delivery for key populations for men who have sex with men and transgender. What's an IP? Implementing partner.
1: Ah, sorry, yes.
0: So we fund um, a handful of local Organizations here in Thailand as sub-partners to um, an international partner. And, um, you know, in the discussions we have had with our headquarters and also with um, the Office of the Global AIDS Coordinator, they've said, you guys should be funding more local partners uh, directly. Mm-hmm. I said, listen, we have, we have a very small team at USAID RDMA. What is RDMA? Sorry, that's the Regional Development Mission for Asia. Gotcha. That's the acronym for my office, USAID RDMA. Um, So we don't really have the capacity because it also takes a lot more work from the USAID side to do local partner work, right? Like, because we have to be able to follow up more for local partners, right? Like, if we're going to ask these things of them, we have to be ready to support them also. So a lot of our missions that do a lot more work with local organizations have larger staffs so that they can provide direct support, too. So when the accountant at the local organization says, I don't know what to do about this quarterly report, they call up the financial person at the USAID mission, and they can help answer the question directly, right? So you need kind of more staffing on both sides. Um, but sorry, that that's like one piece. But, but so I would say that's that, a great you know, example. Us,
1: the
0: Thailand team is small, relatively, right? We're actually not a Thailand program. We're a regional, we're an Asia region program. USAID is non-presence for Thailand. We don't actually have an official Thailand program.
1: How, how small um, is small? The... Like you it's say, hard. the the talent the, the team is small. I'm just curious like what's like oh. like your your finance team, like you know, is it is it one person? Is it
0: <laughs> so like I said, there's actually nobody for Thailand. This is the regional oh, mission for you. Asia. So we support fourteen missions in Asia.
1: Oh wow. Um, That's huge. which
0: Thailand is one. Yeah. So the USAID RDMA team is is a good size, it's pretty large. Um, yeah. but in ter- but nobody's dedicated to Thailand. Right. They're supporting many
1: countries. So it's hard. So if one local Thai organization calls up the head of finance at USAID RDMA, that's, you know, you you just can't do that sustainably across 14 different country offices that you support and, you know, an arbitrary number of local organizations within those country offices.
0: Yeah. So even within the health office, um, we don't have a very large HIV team right now. Um, At one point, we only had, you know, one person actually. So, so there's the staffing element. But I think that that's, I think, actually secondary. That's one piece, right, just, you know, internally. But then the more important piece, you know, that question of, like, why aren't you funding more local organizations is, you know, we were looking at the way that we've been working with these local organizations as subs, right? We've been working with them to develop their services to a level of quality that they can get reimbursed from the Thai government, from the National Health Security oh, Office here in Thailand.
1: That makes so much sense.
0: And if you look at the trend over time, over the last four or five years, they have increased, they have steadily increased the proportion of their budget that is coming through reimbursements from the Thai government.
1: That's amazing. That's awesome.
0: Some of them, it's a very clear clear success story, actually. Um,
1: Yeah. So
0: I think some of them are even majority funded by the reimbursements that they're getting from the National Health Security Office. Well done. So for my, so when they asked us, why aren't we locally funding, I said, why would we, Inject ourselves at this point in time to create a system for them to report to the U.S. government, instead of continuing to support their evolution to getting more financing from the Thai government.
1: Right, right, right.
0: Because the, the U.S. system is completely like we have very specific criteria that don't match most other donors. I mean, a yeah. lot of other donors will defer to our systems. But we have a lot of requirements, um, and oftentimes they'll answer like it answers the same needs that some of the other donors will have. But, you know, if if these organizations are on a nice glide path already for the Thai government, it just didn't make sense to me to try to like anything that we would do at that point is a derailment, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people don't realize that there is this whole reporting system that necessarily needs to exist and why it exists and what onus it creates on a small organization. Like, you know, for me, like I'm I'm as as much fan as anyone of supporting local organizations. But if you tell me that that means that local organizations all need to hire like three dedicated accounting finance people, then I'll be like, no, that's crazy. You know, that's a lot of these organizations are fifteen people to begin with. And from this conversation, I get why it's hard. (laughs) And I appreciate you pulling that up.
0: It's almost inevitable that it, like, you know, to feed the beast, you can't, you have to create a little one, right? Like, they, they kind of have to be, they kind of have to be matched in a way. Like I said, you know, like, you know, at the local organization, if the finance person has a question, who are they going to call? Right? Like they need someone to call. Yeah. So then yeah. like, do you have that kind of counterpart on your team? Otherwise, you know, how do they get help? But I think the bigger issue for me that I've seen, especially in Thailand, is—or the bigger, or I guess the clarity that I've gotten from from seeing this situation in Thailand is really, you know, if USAID or the U.S. government really doesn't intend to be there forever, then we need to really think about, you know, what direction we're headed in. And in some countries that are farther along, like Thailand, for example, we don't need to be messing with what seems to already be working. Um, we want to support that, um, even though, you know, it doesn't look great, honestly, for us when they say, how much of the, what percentage of your budget goes to local organizations? So I'm like, zero. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that you know, on the surface of it does not reflect well on USAID or the U.S. government. Um, but I hope that when people hear the reason why, they understand and can agree.
1: Yeah. Because I no, really, I-,
0: I don't understand why, I-, I can't think of a good reason to um to disrupt what I see as a good trajectory right
1: now. I love the color that you're providing to this picture. You know, this is something that the indicators don't get across, like the truth of what's happening on the ground, the capacity that's already there. Like it's um, it's great to hear that from you and how it's all, it's all coming together. So Marie, a few questions just to wrap up our show. First question for you is whether you have any advice for young professionals, uh, people who are thinking about a career in aid.
0: Hmm. I think I would say go for it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe don't overthink it too much. Right. Give it a try. Um, That's kind of my general life philosophy, maybe. But uh, I feel like you can only learn something about yourself. And I think that, you know, it's maybe good to not feel like you have to commit to it for the long term. But I do think it's something worth trying because it gives you another perspective.
1: For sure. Marie, is there a common implementation mistake or misguided approach that you've often faced in the programs that you've worked with?
0: I don't know if I'd say it's misguided, but maybe one thing that I think we, we all need to be aware of, especially I think for myself working in a lot of different multicultural environments, is um, just being sure that when you all get up from the table and you walk away, you actually all have the same understanding of what just transpired and oh, what you're going to do next.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's that's a big one.
0: <laughs> it's... I think that it will trip you up on many levels.
1: For <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing so how it much can be basic. misunderstood.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds basic, but uh that really can throw a lot of things off track.
1: Agreed. Huh. Mary, would you like to offer a shout out to another mover or shaker in this field?
0: Oh gosh, mover and shaker. I well can I can I give a shout out to you actually,
1: <laughs> um, I actually
0: <laughs> think it's um, fantastic what you're doing. I really have a lot of admiration for you for, for this project for investing all the time. I mean, I know you said that, you know, thank you for my time for helping to get everything in place to do this. But I mean, I was looking at your website or the, and noticing like, I mean, there are a lot of regular posts and I know this is not um, a fast thing for you. It's, I mean, you spend time doing this and I think that, you know, um, objective of really increasing empathy is really important. So yeah. Shout out to you.
1: Thank you so much, Maria. I think I think you maybe just made my day. Wow, I'm really touched. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I wasn't fishing for that. I've, no one, literally, no one has ever done that on this show before. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I'm kind of floored. <laughs> um, reading just for fun. Is there a book, a blog, or a podcast that you'd recommend just from personal interest?
0: Well, I think these days I'm probably most enjoying children's books. You know, I have two young children um, and we read a lot together and I, you know, my parents didn't have time to read to me when I was little. Mm. So uh, like a lot of the books I read to them now might be considered like American classics, you know, or like all little kids read them or the kids I grew up with maybe read them, but I've never read them. Um, oh, yeah. So this is kind of like, I never read a doctor's Seuss book as a child. The first oh, doctor's really? book I ever read was to my kids uh, a couple years ago. Huh.
1: Have you read The Places You'll Go?
0: I have. I read That's a classic. Ago. Yes, um, I'm a huge fan of Horton. Here's a Who. Uh, read that
1: one. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, that
0: no. one's great. I was, my mind was blown. I can't remember the title right now. I'd have to go find it. But there is a doctor Seuss book about the healthcare system. Is it? Which was written a long time. ago. Oh, it was written a long time ago. What? But it is so spot on, I can't even tell you.
1: I need, I need to get that book.
0: <laughs> when I read it to my son for the first time, got to the end and I was like, when was this written?
1: <laughs> is Dr. Seuss a real doctor?
0: Hmm. <laughs> I was like, this is completely accurate. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think the last one that I read that um, was real feel good or really like got the emotions flowing was uh, Labro Grancur, The Giving Tree
1: oh by yeah, yeah yeah that's a great one i really i love that book it's yeah. so good it's so good.
0: we read it in that uh, we read it in french and oh, nice. uh, it's really interesting to to just watch the kids as they you know go through the pages and they you can kind of see like they feel sad then they seem oh. happy and then at the end they're like what just happened you know like, are we are we happy or are we sad because the tree is no oh, more man. but they're together
1: yeah you complex know? so like
0: all these things <laughs> that yeah So complex but simple at the same time so I've Mm -hmm. really enjoyed that actually reading these kids books with the kids that I never (laughs) read the first time around
1: that sounds beautiful
0: I would say do that for fun maybe a good break
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad your kids are having the chance and that you are finally getting the chance to read these books you know (laughs) Uh, for them and for you (laughs) thank you so much for your time Maria I really appreciate having you on the show
0: yeah it's my pleasure thanks Romina
1: for those of you that have been following this podcast for a while, I think you can tell that I've been rooting for the local organizations for some time. And this was the first conversation where someone actually explained to me why it is that an aid organization might not fund them directly, and also why they might not want to be funded directly. And I guess I should have figured that out earlier, because even I've worked at a small social enterprise, And the weight of the burden of applying for USAID funding and accounting for it and reporting on it has been overwhelming. But let's not kid ourselves here. It is true that these intermediaries, these American organizations that act as middlemen between USAID and local organizations, they're taking their cut of the pie. So the question I ask myself is, how do we write the balance? How do we make sure that as much of these funds as possible makes its way to the local organization who's actually doing the work and knows the context in country? What do you think? Let us know on Twitter at Aid or by email. For more information on Marie and her work, you can also download our show notes from the website, aidevolved.com. That's all for today.